I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start a Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Right after graduating college, I immediately started the most profitable business I would ever run. I taught kids, mostly elementary school kids on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, how to play basketball. Now, if that being my most profitable business makes you worry about my financial prospects since those days, how about you quit worrying and share the podcast with a few more people and help me out? Or at least give us a five-star rating and review so other people can find us. I'm eating ramen over here. It is ramen from a startup called Emmy that's plant-based and has a bunch of protein and is disrupting the, wait for it, $50 billion instant ramen market that's predicted to get to $75 billion by 2028, but it's still ramen. Side note, those Emmy folks deserve an episode of their own. A $50 billion market that hasn't been touched in decades just sitting there, hiding in plain sight. Brilliant. Maybe we'll try to find a few more of those. Anyway, I am possibly exaggerating about the profitability thing, but what a business that was for a whole lot of reasons. I charged the parents of the kids I worked with $300 an hour for my lessons. For the parents that didn't want to pay $300 but liked my value prop, I offered group lessons with three kids for $150 each. Those were even better for me as I netted $450 an hour and had the kids play one-on-one for most of the time. Also, the parents in the group lessons often gave me like a $20 tip, which I thought was patently absurd until one father clarified that this was to, quote, take extra special care of his kid. Well, all right. I taught these lessons on the public courts by 78th Street, literally right next to people who were giving private lessons for 75 bucks an hour. The way I charged 4X was by positioning the outcome I created for the kids differently. My lessons were for serious players only really for serious parents. I said that I taught kids the foundations of what would allow them to eventually get a college scholarship. I told parents over and over that $300 an hour now would save them $300,000 in a few years. I jokingly tell them to start thinking about what they'd buy with all the money they'd intended for their kids' college. It'd be theirs now. Maybe a boat, I'd say with a laugh. Also, I brought my special hydration mixes for the kids, which were a huge hit. It was just Gatorade with ice and mason jars, but I'd bring it in a cooler and everyone swore by it. The business wouldn't have made any sense if I'd had to spend time marketing it because I had a full-time job and didn't have time for that. Plus, that'd kill my margins. Luckily, I didn't have to. My inbound requests for lessons grew organically like a weed. I got new customers through word of mouth by using a tactic I learned from the most popular speakeasy in New York City at the time called Please Don't Tell. Please Don't Tell actively told customers not to tell other people about their bar. It's right there in the name. They claimed they wanted to keep the bar small and intimate. Speakeasies are only speakeasies if they're a secret. You've probably heard of Please Don't Tell, which is all the proof you need of how great the marketing was. The product aligned with the messaging, too. The bar was in the back of a hot dog shop, and you had to walk through a telephone booth to get there. All of this builds a consistent message that, of course, spreads like wildfire. I had at least 15 people tell me about this bar you weren't supposed to tell anyone about. There are few messages more powerful than I'm not supposed to tell anyone this, but. 
And if you don't believe me, just ask any future grandparent who wasn't supposed to share the news that their kid is pregnant yet how well they've kept that secret. So I told the parents of my players not to tell any other parents about my lessons. I just didn't have any more room for players, I said, especially ones that weren't as serious as their kid. Then I'd look to the sky and pretend to think and say, well, I guess maybe I could add one more. I have a slot opening up. If you recommend someone and think they're serious, maybe I could squeeze them in. Which immediately caused the parents, all hyper-competitive, to tell their friends with kids that they were working with a guy who was completely booked. They weren't even sure they were supposed to be talking about it. But his goal was to get your kid a college scholarship. And if their kid was interested and promised to be serious about it and drop their name, maybe they could get lessons too. I couldn't have gotten more intros if I'd been paying the parents by the lead. For some reason, I can't remember why, I only did this for one summer. But a few years back, one of the dads whose kid I worked with when he was seven reached out to tell me his son had gotten a full ride lined up to play at Marist. He'd still remembered those lessons, and he half-jokingly said, quote, I guess those $300 lessons did save me $300,000. Time to go shopping for a boat. That made me feel old, but also reminded me that a good message travels and endures and gets customers to pay before you've got anything, before you've got testimonials, before you've got a product. $300 to save you $300,000. Better start thinking about that boat. A good message allows you to align your product behind it. Premium basketball lessons, secretive hydration formula, and glass mason jars. Don't tell anyone about it. A good message anchors who your customer is and who your customer isn't. If you're looking to screw around and have fun, go play horse. If you're looking to get a college scholarship, I've got a program for you. A good message shows up a decade later in an email from a customer. It's message, not product, that matters early for getting customers. Messaging that resonates will tell you what to build. Messaging needs to come first. A good message is not easy. Kevin Hale, a former partner at Y Combinator, talks about legible startups, startups that are easy to understand. I wish I'd thought of that term, but will happily use it with him in mind. I can't think of a better way to describe great startups than legible. A startup that's poised to grow is legible, which is harder than it sounds, and only legible startups grow. So today we're going to help you build a legible startup, one that's poised to grow, one that's got messaging compelling enough to deserve a product behind it. We'll use an idea I love to test this out, and we'll see if we can't get some customers. As always, this will hopefully help you make your startup idea more legible, or at least make you consider teaching basketball lessons on the Upper East Side. We'll get to it all after a little smooth jazz. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at GetTackleBox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at GetTackleBox.com. Back to it. There's an idea I've been pitched a number of times that we'll use as the example today that I absolutely love. I'd also actually had a similar idea way back in the day. The problem we'll try and solve is easy to understand, but like that massive instant ramen market, hiding in plain sight. A decade or so ago, I worked in corporate venture capital for a bit. The gig was great, the people were smart, and I learned a ton. But every week, there were three to five recurring meetings. I forget if they were 45 minutes or an hour, and I forget if it was three or five, but it sure felt like a lot at the time. 
These meetings were nerve-wracking for me because all the bigwigs were there. My boss's boss's boss sat at the head of the table. These meetings were kind of messy. If I wasn't pretty sure one or two of them listened to the pod, I'd use the term disaster. And if I did use that term to those two, please know I'm not talking about you. It wasn't your fault. These meetings weren't objectively bad. They just wandered. There was a whole lot of, so um, what else we got? As we went around the room and people said things like, this will be similar to what I said last meeting, but everyone looked at the clock a lot, but the meetings never ended early. One day, I remember looking around and back of enveloping the cost of the meeting. I think I figured there were 10 people with an average salary of close to $400,000 when you took into account the big earners and bonuses. If you break that down and assume 40 hours per week and 50 weeks per year, that's 200 bucks an hour. So an hour-long meeting cost the firm roughly $2,000. And that $2,000 meeting happened multiple times a week. That's a lot of money. You're looking at somewhere between six dollars and $10,000 a week of salary spent on meetings for people to say, so uh, what else you got? And since those meetings were so rambling, it was customary for the small three-person teams to meet after that big meeting to figure out what we'd actually do next. Those were scheduled for 30 minutes. And this happened all over the company, and it happens across tons of companies. Before this pod, I spoke with a bunch of friends who work at big, reputable companies who say that, yeah, these types of meetings are constant, ridiculous, and way worse on Zoom. Because in person, you could at least write it off as FaceTime or building relationships with small talk or other things I think are bullshit. But on Zoom, there's none of that. The question is, why wasn't there a clear agenda with takeaways and goals and to-do lists and everything else a good meeting needs? Things people know a meeting needs. I thought back to those meetings and asked my friends and a pretty straightforward answer emerged. There often isn't someone who owns standing meetings. Standing meetings are standing, meaning the impetus for them wasn't an actual thing someone wanted to make a decision on. Not to get trippy on you, but they exist because they exist. Since no one owned them, nothing was measured from them, and there were no learnings on how to make them better because it's unclear what better would even be. If you'd flipped it around and said to someone, quote, I'm giving you a $10,000 a week budget to, say, get the weekly tasks in order or whatever the goal of these meetings are, and said that they would be judged on how well they did this, I'm about 99% confident they wouldn't say, okay, let's just get literally everyone in a room for an hour every morning to talk about whether or not they've watched the show Severance. But that's not how it went. So standing meetings exist because they exist and thousands, millions, tens of millions of dollars flutter out the window like the feather from Forrest Gump because of it. Now we're on the same page about the idea, make meetings effective. There was massive opportunity a decade ago and there's bigger opportunity now. So what do we do about it? What would you do about it? A startup idea is just a hypothesis that you've got that you think is unique enough and important enough and powerful enough to grow. Please don't tell the hidden speakeasy in the back of the hot dog shop you weren't allowed to tell people about was unique and important and powerful enough to grow. Notice I haven't once mentioned the cocktails. They didn't matter. Premium basketball lessons for people who want their kids to get a college scholarship was unique and important and powerful enough to grow. Notice I haven't once mentioned my lesson strategy. That didn't matter. Messaging is what will help you grow. So messaging is what we're after, at least early on. Product comes later. Product matters less. You need to make sure that your idea is legible and can grow before you spend too much time and effort and money on it. 
This takes testing and iteration. We need to know who the first customers are, what messaging they'll respond to, what channels we can put that messaging in that they won't ignore, and why they'll buy. If we start at the end and look at all the Tacklebox companies that have been successful, each looks a bit different, but in every case figure this stuff out first. They found a message that traveled with a customer they could reach. Then they built a product that fit the customer and the message. The successful businesses all look eerily the same that way. The companies that failed all look different, all compensating for never nailing that first bit, legible messaging channel that works, product that follows. They spend lots of money on Facebook and Instagram and other channels to try and cover up for the foundational elements they don't know, what customers care about enough to share. Facebook and Instagram ads are taxes on illegible companies, taxes on people who don't know their customer or what they care about or why they'd share something. The companies that succeeded all looked the same early on. Message resonates, customers share it, build a product for those people who are happy waiting for it to come. So the first thing we need to figure out is that first bit. And if you can't, it doesn't make sense to move forward. The business won't work anyway, and it's not worth your time. There's a reason people don't do this, and it's got nothing to do with the work involved. It's mostly because you care a lot about your idea. Back to my basketball business. The 300 bucks to save 300,000 bucks was not my first idea. And it wasn't even an idea I thought would work. Here's how it came about. Someone I went to college with was a designer and they helped me design some flyers. I wasn't really sure which message would work, so I made a bunch of them. I made a corresponding Gmail address for each flyer. So Brian's at gmail.com for one, Brian teaches basketball at gmail.com for another. Gmail addresses were free and I didn't know how to make a website. I changed the headline in each and put the flyers on courts all over the Upper East and Upper West Side where I thought kids were. Some flyers said my lessons were cheaper. Some said they were group lessons. Some said they'd get your kid exhausted in an hour. Some said they taught tall kids how to play like guards. Some said I'd teach guards how to shoot three-pointers. One was even a joke about the Dan Smith will teach you guitar flyers, which New York City people will get. And finally, one was only for serious kids and would help them get scholarships. $300 an hour to save you $300,000 down the road. I didn't get a ton of responses, maybe five to seven total from all the flyers but all but one were for the $300 product. And now we need to talk about cooking. Why are there so few people who are great cooks? It's kind of weird, right? There are lots of people who are pretty good cooks, but for something lots of people do like five to seven times per week for an hour each night consistently, there's a bit of a weird low peak. For example, if people played piano for an hour a day every day, there'd be a lot of really great piano players, but cooking doesn't work that way. Why? Because cooking is expensive. Not literally, the ingredients are usually cheaper than eating out, but the act of cooking is expensive. If you make a terrible meal, that stinks. If it's inedible, you've got a real problem. You need to go and get something else, and it's embarrassing. And cooking is often pretty utilitarian. Get it done so you can move on. You never practice cooking because you care about the outcome every time. An average is 100 times better than bad. We aren't getting better at cooking, we're getting cooking done. When I was testing out basketball lesson ideas, I couldn't have cared any less which poster won, or honestly, if any of them won. If no one called, I just wouldn't teach basketball lessons. It wasn't tied to my ego in any way. It was something cool I could try, and it worked. When the outcome you're after is tied up in your ego or the quality of your instincts or something else we take a lot of pride in or feel like we have to do, we'll be less risky. 
because being wrong would force us to rethink something fundamental about ourselves. If I tied my self-worth to teaching basketball and no one wanted me to teach them basketball, that'd be a real internal problem for me. So subconsciously, I wouldn't try anything I wasn't pretty sure would work. I definitely wouldn't try anything I thought had a low likelihood of success. Which means I'd only try something unoriginal because original seems risky. And the unoriginal things don't ever work. The unoriginal stuff is taken. Capitalism is efficient. But since I didn't care, I tried lots of things and the extreme thing won. Extreme approaches are usually the things that get extreme results. I never in a million years would have guessed the $300 lessons would resonate. If I had been running lessons to pay for rent, I never would have tried that. The best businesses hide. No one tries anything extreme in the kitchen that might really suck because it's tied to an outcome, the meal you're going to eat in a few minutes. If you wanted to become a great chef, and I'm not saying you should do this, but if that's the outcome you're after, I would suggest cooking three meals every Wednesday and Sunday and planning on only eating one. Maybe you donate the other two, or you're wasteful and you just toss them. This would allow cooking to become cheaper. You'd try extreme things and have a shot at extreme results. Lots of them would be bad, some of them would be amazing. You'd break out of the range of average cooks. So how does this work with our agenda idea? And by the way, I'm calling this startup Taking Minutes, and I cannot tell you how proud of that name I am. You get it, right? Like the bad meetings are taking minutes from you, but also taking minutes is something people do at meetings to stay on an agenda. Are you freaking kidding me? Taking minutes? Damn, that's good. And if you're wondering, the funniest meeting pun I've ever heard was on a Zoom with someone pitching an idea, and they made a joke that didn't land at all. The guy then said, well, that wasn't remotely funny. That one got me. Anyway. We need to be sure to make the messaging tests, our efforts to find the legible version of our idea, cheap, and we need to remove our ego from it completely. Entrepreneurs get into trouble when they associate something fundamental about themselves with the specifics of their idea, and the longer you think of an idea, the stronger this belief tends to be. We've had tons of founders come in and say something like, I'm building Soho House for people who love esports, and then everything they quote test is just searching for data that supports that initial idea. The idea is tied to their ego or self-worth, which means they can't actually test it because a different answer would fundamentally shift the ground beneath their feet. It's called desirability bias, and it's a real stick in the mud. To get high level again, to truly care about a startup idea, one must not care about your startup idea. Can you tell I'm excited for season three of The Mandalorian? You've got to realize that your intuition is less important than tests. The thing you believe isn't important. The process you value is. So here's how I'd test the meeting agenda messaging. First, I'd reinforce over and over that I didn't know the answer and that lots of tests would show me the way. Then I'd start with who I wanted to test with first. We need to start with customers that share a few things in common. First, they need to know they have the problem, understand the breadth of it, and be trying to solve it already. Every single customer I had for my $300 lessons had already thought about their kid playing in college before I put it out in front of them. I just confirmed what they were thinking and gave them a path. Next, someone needs to own the problem. If no one is being promoted based on solving the problem, we're wasting our time pursuing it. Finally, we need to find customers that'll talk. How can one meeting lead to 50? Now for that customer, the one that hopefully exists, and if they don't, we're kind of sunk, let's test out some legible messaging. Messaging has three components. First, location, where we say it. Second, content, what we say. And third, call to action, 
what customers can do with it. Again, my basketball flyers nailed all three, although I can't claim to have planned this. The location was basketball courts. That's where the problem arose. A parent would go with their kid to the court to try and get better, get there, and realize, well, shit, I don't really know what to do here to help them. Hey, look, a flyer. The content was compelling and wildly specific. We've talked through that. The call to action was aligned with the message. I said I had limited spots for talented and driven players. Email me to see if I had any slots left. Scarcity goes along nicely with a premium message. For agendas, location is a bit tricky. Ideally, you show up right when the problem occurs. Car salesmen are never going into a Starbucks and trying to convince you to buy a Toyota Tercel. They do it once you're on the lot. What's the lot look like for our customer? Maybe after a meandering meeting, our potential customers Google how to write a meeting summary. Maybe they cruise LinkedIn because they're frustrated and are looking for a new job. Maybe they Google how to write a meeting agenda to prep for the next meeting. Second level location is less targeted to the moment and more targeted to the person. Where are they? My basketball analogy was putting flyers at schools. This might be LinkedIn or forums for managers or Slack groups or even Reddit threads for this customer. The content, what we say, needs to run the gamut. The key with messaging is to not be wallpaper. It's easy to scroll past stuff, so specificity here is key. Your instincts are going to push you general. Something like meeting agenda software to get the most out of every interaction. Instincts will always push you to a message in a way that no one actually talks. Good marketing is conversational. I like trying to come up with a bunch of different outcomes and messaging to them directly. So something like, what are the consequences of a bad meeting? I start with who I think would own the meeting, and based on some early conversations at smaller teams, that person impacted is the CEO or the COO. So maybe the meetings are bad because the team has grown. So something like, you raised a Series A and hired some new people, but they don't know what we prioritize or how we work. Or maybe establish the culture fast with new hires through effective meetings. Maybe they're worried about scaling operations, in which case messaging like build and reinforce your internal operating system through meetings with consistent agendas and action items might be specific enough to catch their attention. Maybe they think nothing ever gets done at meetings, so messaging that says something like, you'll never have a meeting that doesn't end with a decision again could be compelling. Maybe these meetings just feel unproductive, in which case you could say, you'll never hear, so what else is going on in a meeting again? Or make company impacting decisions after every meeting. Maybe people are just dreading a meeting and you could say something like, click on this if you have a meeting today you don't wanna be a part of, we'll handle the rest. The goal is to find people who already believe what you believe and speak directly to them, not in wink. Let them know you know what they know. The call to action, the last piece, reinforces that. Basketball lessons had scarcity, you might have value. So something like, Sign up to get our meeting agenda for effective five-minute daily stand-ups. Or sign up to get a 20-minute working session on what your meeting should look like. Or sign up to get our meeting timer. It works on Zoom and lets you off the hook for saying we've got to move on too many times. The last step is to track. See which of these travel. Use Unbounce or Wix or Optimizely or whatever other site you use to track landing pages. We can go into that more if you'd like if you join Tacklebox. These are the types of tests that we run to see if the idea is legible. It's really hard to pull yourself out of the testing process and execute it from a high level. It's easy to get attached to certain types of messages or customers or value or what you know coming in. But it's unlikely that your instincts are spot on. They're probably close, but close doesn't count in startups. Only great survives. Take pride in the process you'll use to move forward. 
process you use to find that legible message. And if any of you have kids who want basketball lessons, maybe I'll start doing that again. Gatorade and mason jars. You'll get a boat. Reach out. I've only got a few spots left. This was the idea to start a podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. And if you have a startup idea and you want to test it out and go through the type of stuff we just spoke about, let's do it. Making this stuff cheap, getting to extremes is much, much easier with a partner like us. Head to gettacklebox.com backslash no whisper ideas to get the podcast listeners discount and have a great week.